inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, If I still sound a little congested, that's because I do still have some kind of, you know, residual COVID congestion. So hang with me. I'll do my best to not hack at you. Um, but today we have nine questions. And if, if for those of you don't know, we've been trying a new thing here the past like two weeks where each podcast is a little bit more themed around a certain topic. And today's topic is more about trauma, abuse, and things like that. Um, so we will get through these questions. The first eight are the ones with the most thumbs ups. And then number nine is just a random selection so that any of you out there who, you know, have been trying to get your question answered, that gives you kind of like a more of a chance to get it, get it answered. And also I've been um, releasing the post on the community tab where I get these questions. I've been releasing that post a little bit later because I heard from a lot of you that you're like, hey, I'm not even up at that time. Or it was definitely easier for my folks in the UK to get their questions answered because they were already up at that time. But for people in the States and Australia, it was kind of impossible. And so we've moved it um, and we'll keep moving it around um, just so that everybody gets a chance. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into the questions. And question number one says, hi, Katie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why do I feel so much shame and guilt about my trauma? It's not just a necessary shame that it happened. It's also guilt for upsetting others with it and worrying that they'll think less of me, fear that they are judging. And I almost want to downplay it to show that I am still quote unquote normal and it's quote no biggie. I feel shame in my whole body, total panic about why did I just share that? And then there are um, two comments on this, but let's just dig into this. Now, a lot of times the reason for shame and guilt when it comes to our trauma is when things happen to us that essentially don't make sense, right? They're nonsensical, as we would say. We do our best with the tools and resources we have to make sense of that. And the best way we can make sense of things that essentially our nonsense, is by making it our fault. Hence the guilt. I did something wrong to cause this because otherwise, why would someone do this to another person, right? We can think that. Why would this happen? Why would a parent abuse a child? Why why would a spouse abuse um, their loved one? Why would my uh, parent hurt me as a child, right? None of that makes any sense because it isn't. There's no sense to make of it. So I must have done something to cause it. Hence guilt. Then, or if guilt's, you know, not enough. We still have other questions to answer. You know, why did this keep happening to me? Why did I go back to see them if I knew they abused me? Right? We can have these questions. Enter our uh, friend, shame. There must be something wrong with me. For those of you who don't know, the difference between like guilt, shame, embarrassment is that guilt is like, oh, I've done something wrong. Embarrassment is I can't believe I did that. And shame is there's something wrong with me. Like I'm broken in some way. And that's really why those are always attached to trauma, because a lot of traumas, like 90% of them, maybe even more, are like, why would that happen to me? Why did that happen? And we try to make sense of what took place, and there's really no sense to make of it. And so we blame ourselves. So we turn that in on ourselves. And that is really kind of another layer to our PTSD. Now, the other parts of this question, it said, um, I really, well, I guess it wasn't so much as a question. But um, I feel guilt for upsetting others with it. And because of the shame, because we can believe that something's wrong with us and even the guilt and the embarrassment, like I did something wrong, it can be really hard for us to admit that something happened and talk about it. Because again, we think we've done something to cause it. So we think we're just as uh, culpable in this situation when we're really not. And it's very normal that's why it's really important that we work with, you know, a trauma specialist or even any therapist that we feel connected to and talk through this. We don't have to 
you know, necessarily share everything if we're not ready or if we feel like we've overshared, like this person's like, why did I share that? Ugh, I always think that. Tell them about this process. Tell them about what's going on because in that process of, you know, <clears throat> guilt, shame, fear, embarrassment, whatever, there is more helpful information for our healing because if we don't acknowledge all the things that are going on in our, our brain. We only acknowledge the things that happen to us or the things we want to work on and we don't acknowledge the process. We won't be able to move as quickly through it, right? Our process is just as, if not more so, important than the other stuff. And so let your therapist know that you're experiencing this. Feeling the shame in our entire bodies, especially when we were a victim of you know physical or sexual abuse in some fashion or assault or things like that is very normal. Um, that's kind of why I think we can have like body memories and the the trauma experience and the shame and guilt associated with that trauma experience can be what, what I would call like palpable, meaning it's just like everywhere. It's like, it's like in the air. Like I just can't get away from it, right? It's like, it's almost like the feeling is so intense I can almost touch it. Does that make sense? And so I think that's kind of what's happening. We're so overwhelmed or overcome with these feelings of shame and guilt that we, it feels like it's in our entire body. It's like everywhere we turn, it's like suffocating kind of. Um, yeah, I'm, I guess that's that's my advice. And knowing that people who are like therapists, especially, are not going to think less of you for having a trauma in your life. And people in your life who you share this with, if they feel like that, if they think less of you because of this, then it's almost, I know this is hard to take, but like it's almost better that we know this because obviously they're a shitty friend or family member and we might not want to spend that much time with them. Sounds like an asshole, right? Okay, let's move on to the the comments. There's a comment that said this, and then thinking about it, I start feeling shame and guilt about initially feeling shame and guilt. Yes, we can get caught. And I, I don't mean to, to laugh. It's like we get caught in this cycle of like, I feel this way and then I feel bad for feeling that way that only that in, in turn amplifies that feeling, which is why it's really important to tell your therapist or whoever you're working with about this coming up for you. Because again, it's completely normal. Like I said, I, I 90% or more people who struggle with trauma are going to have some feelings of shame, guilt, and embarrassment. And it can kind of switch which one we feel the most, or they can all happen at the same time. Very, very normal. Nothing's wrong with you for experiencing this. It's it's just a cycle that we can get caught in, especially for the person who's talking about this, where they feel shame and guilt and then feel shame and guilt about feeling shame. and guilt. So it's like this never ending snowball. And so acknowledging that it's happening, telling you know your mental health professional that you're experiencing this can help. And unfortunately, just as a FYI and a heads up of what's coming down the pipe, if you're working with your therapist, is that the only way away from shame, guilt, and embarrassment is vulnerability and courage, which I know is super uncomfortable and obviously we don't want to do that, but that's our way out. That's our way of letting ourselves out is by talking about it, sharing about it, being courageous about our experience, because then it doesn't leave any room for that. Shame and guilt can't exist when we're being honest and open about what's happening, right? If we're talking about it and getting support and sharing our, our experience, it makes it harder for it to hang on and tell us that something's wrong with us. Because we're like, well, no, I talked to so-and-so and they experienced that too. And then I talked to my therapist and they said, this is totally normal, right? It gives us more facts to fight back against those negative, unhelpful, shame-based thoughts. Okay, now the final comment on this is, yes, this. Part of me wants to be able to talk about it but I feel like such a burden and that people will feel like you just need to let it go and get over it. Even with my therapist, I can't help but feel like a burden. How do you get past that? Am I, again, sharing this with them, this process, but my hypothesis when I read this, I was like, ooh, I wonder how things are experienced in your family of origin. Meaning when you were raised, were you maybe it was of the era of like children should be seen and not heard. That raises a lot of kids to think that they're a burden. Were you raised in an era of, um, you know, shut up, you're embarrassing me, stop doing this. I can't believe you'd ask me to do this for you. Acting like everything that a parent has to do for their child is like too much. Of course you feel like a burden. You were told your whole life you're a burden. And so I would assume my hypothesis is that this is like a pattern of thinking based on, you know, repeated behaviors where, that you were made to feel that way. And so bringing this up with your therapist, telling them that it, just like you told me, you know, I want to talk about the things that have happened to me, but I feel like I'm a burden. You know, I don't know where this comes from because we have to be curious again, be detectives. We don't need to be judgmental, right? Why is it this coming up for me? Has this ever happened before? When do I ever remember someone in my life who was important telling me that I was a burden or acting in a way that caused me to feel this way? And that's what I internalized is that I'm a burden. 
Because I'm here to tell you that as a therapist, I think I can speak for all therapists when I say that you're not a burden, us being able to create a space for you to just dump all your shit and feel safe to do so is like, that's our whole goal. And that is what we do in our job. And you are not a burden. We would never think, oh, you're putting too much on me. If I think that probably shouldn't be a therapist, right? Imagine the things that we hear every day in and out. Like it's all the time. We're trained to do it. We want to do it. And part of it is like taking care of ourselves and making sure we can do it again tomorrow. So you are not a burden to your therapist and people in your life who are worth being there won't feel that way either. But we have to find a way to communicate clearly with those we love. And that can all be done practicing with our therapist and talking talking with them about this because my, again, my suspicion is that this didn't just happen here. And it won't end here if we don't recognize where it's coming from and maybe what we can do differently or ways that we can maybe argue back against that thought pattern so that hopefully at some point we can at least feel like neutral about it. Meaning like, I know this is a lot, but I have to share it. And if they want to listen, they'll listen. You know, that would be kind of my goal. I know a lot of times we think, oh, we need to move it to a positive place or we need to think that we're never going to be a burden and like completely flip this uh, automatic thought on its head. But sometimes that's too much. That can feel like then if we ever do have this old inkling to feel like a burden that we've done something wrong and that we're back at square one. Sometimes our goal is just to get into what I call neutral space where we just don't talk such trash to ourselves. Does that make sense? I hope so. <clears throat> okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. My question is, can sexual abuse happen through people on the internet? I've never heard anyone with a degree talk about it, but I've heard other people have had the same experience as me through them talking about it on TikTok. My generation was the first generation who could have talked to men on the internet growing up. I know. As an older person who did not grow up with the internet, this is what terrifies me. To what degree could this be traumatizing or be affecting your life now if you were never touched? You, uh, oh, you are the best. Thank you so much for all that you do. Of course, you're so very welcome. And there's a comment on this as well too, but let's just dig into this. Yes, sexual abuse can happen through the internet, period. You don't have to be touched in order to be abused. We've talked about this before, but um, sexual abuse can be done through sharing of images, asking inappropriate questions, uh, asking them to share image. You know, the the image or video sharing is so easy these days. That's why I said this is like terrifying to, to me as an older generation, right? I'm 38, so I'm like at the, I'm barely a millennial and I did not grow up with the internet, thank God. Um, but for those of us who did, there are so many ways that it can be helpful and there's also so many ways it can be hurtful. And so I caution each and every one of you, if you feel uh, taken advantage of, if they've asked you inappropriate questions, ask you to send images or photos of yourself, please never send any videos or images or anything of yourself. Please, please do not. Because once we put something out there, we can't get it back. And for those of you who have already done that, let's just make a pact to not do it from here on out, right? Um, so yes, it can happen through the internet. You don't have to be touched for it to be abuse. I know a lot of times we think that, but even consider emotional abuse, right? Someone neglecting us, not being there for us or yelling at us. They don't touch us, but that's abuse all the same. And the same goes for this. Um, and what else is there? Okay. It, to what degree can traumatizing if anybody and someone left a comment at the bottom of I think it was this question where they said they've heard me talk about what what it means to be traumatized before and they were correct in order to be traumatized something has to happen to us that exceeds what we would call either our ability to cope some people call it a window of tolerance I over the years have called it your uh, resilience right your ability to weather life storms so when something happens to us that threatens our safety or the safety of someone we love and we don't have a way to cope with all that took place, that can be traumatizing. We can have symptoms of PTSD. Now, not everyone who experiences a trauma develops PTSD, just like not everyone who experiences something something depressing develops major depressive disorder. But just to give you an idea of what can and cannot be traumatizing, that's really the bare bones of it. And that's why I believe much more of our population has been traumatized than we realize because we often think of a trauma as being this big thing, like a car crash or going to war. And it can be very different from that, right? We can be traumatized through our parents' divorce or having to move a lot as a kid and not feeling like we had a secure foundation, um, bullying, uh, you know, being sexually harassed through uh, people on the internet. Um, it could be a lot of different things that can happen to us that way. And so the degree to which you would feel traumatized depends on your degree of, of resilience or ability to cope. Now, there was a comment on this that said, <clears throat> can watching R-rated movies voluntarily be traumatizing. 
Um, when it comes to watching something that's not actually real life, it's a little tricky. But if something terrifies you and makes you think it's going to happen to you, which a lot of people like scary movies for that reason, right? We like that adrenaline dump or that feeling like, you know, we're at risk, the jumping out, the, we would like to have that triggered. Um, I don't, I think that's being scared or being overwhelmed. But again, going back to what it means to be traumatized, I believe that, you know, for, if we feel threatened or the threatened of the, the safety of someone we know or love, um, you know, is threatened, that can be traumatizing. But when it comes to watching an R-rated movie voluntarily, my gut says most likely not, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't be experienced f- you know, for you, because I have had patients who've been re-traumatized by watching an R-rated or not even R-rated, just a movie that had similar situations and content as their past trauma, right? We, it it was super triggering and therefore re-traumatizing, if that makes sense. And so I think movies and, and kind of fake scenarios that are created, you know, TV shows and stuff like that can be re-traumatizing because they're triggering. I don't believe that they could be the cause of our trauma. Um, because it's, it's, you know, we, I would assume we all have that awareness. It's not real. Um, we all can turn it off. We can stop it. Whereas if something's happening to us, it, it's a little bit more tricky. I hope that makes sense. <clears throat> Let's move on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie, is it possible to heal from trauma, child sexual abuse and incest while still seeing your family? Ooh, yeah, it's tough. The abuse was disclosed and denied by the abuser and not believed by other family members. I will never understand why why when a child comes forward to tell family that someone in the family has harmed them, why the family members don't believe them. I'll never understand that. They go on like nothing has ever happened. The thing is, I don't want to completely separate from them as I risk losing the healthy relationships and missing out on normalcy, even though this is far from it. Thanks so much for any insight. If we're still, here's the tricky thing. Healing from trauma requires us to not be in a situation where we're, where we're being traumatized now. Does that make sense? It's like in order for us to feel like, I don't even like to use the word safe, but we'll say neutral enough. We have, in order for us to be able to process trauma, we have to be in a space that's neutral enough that we don't feel threatened still. Now, being around your family could be okay as long as you're not still seeing the abuser, maybe, right? Depending on your level of tolerance, your ability to be around that person. Because if we're, if we still feel threatened, it's technically not safe enough for us emotionally to open up Pandora's box of trauma and start processing it through, right? That's why trauma memories, our body's so resilient, like kudos, give yourself a pat on the back. With through dissociation and repressed memories, our body allows us to sustain and survive a traumatic upbringing, right? So shit's happening. Some or multiple people in our family are total dickwads. They're abusing us. We can't get out, right? We're a child. We can't just like move out. And, you know, we don't know what to do or where to go. So our brain pulls the ripcord on reality. We dissociate a lot, making it harder for us to form long-term memory. And we repress the memories that we have so that we can keep going so that we don't have to continually be reminded of the shitty stuff that happened to us, right? But then when we get to a place where we feel neutral or safe, that's when those flashbacks can come up with, you know, more regularity. We can feel extremely hypervigilant and on edge. We can um, feel like we were reminded of our trauma at every turn. And that's really our brain's way of saying, hey, we're in a safe enough space to process this. Let's process this because I've been holding on to this junk for a long time, right? It's like, hey, remember me? We dealt, we didn't deal with this, but it's still here. And so if we're still seeing our abuser or we're still in a threatening situation, the short answer is no. Processing the trauma is not going to be safe enough and we could open ourselves up to potentially be re-traumatized. However, if we're able to limit our contact with our family, let's say it's like once a month, you know, or we only talk to the members of our family not involved in the abuse, then I would say that, yes, we definitely could. But again, it's around protecting ourselves, making sure we're not still under threat, because as long as we're in our stress response or uh, triggered in some way, we're not going to be able to process it through. It won't be safe enough. We might not be able to stay present enough. We can just dissociate all the time. So it's going to be really, really difficult for us to do it. Um, Yeah. So those are my thoughts. And 
I also might encourage you since you feel like your family's not really helpful or healthy, but you just can't bear to leave them. I might encourage you to start creating kind of your own family of friends, people that are supportive and loving. Um, it doesn't mean you have to cut your family off. It's just, I really want you to have a support system that is healthy and that is loving and supportive and does believe you when you say that something happened to you. Um, because that that's just so devastating. I'm so sorry you went through that. But getting you to feel a little bit more neutral and safe will be the key to you beginning that work. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie, I would love for you to talk about growing up with parents who are hoarders. Oh, interesting. Okay. While they were loving parents, the home environment was traumatic. I believe you. If anybody doesn't know, hoarding isn't just, oh, my mom uh, collects a lot of knickknacks or my dad loves his newspapers. This is when it gets in the way of us being able to live our life. So there are stacks and piles of stuff all over the house and we can't just throw it out because throwing it out could be traumatic and triggering to the person in our family who likes to keep it because they can believe that there is some kind of emotional attachment to each and every item, okay? And they'll also spend a lot of their time procuring newer items, like more items to put in the home. And that could be by going through the trash. That could be by um, buying things. It could be any number of things. <clears throat> okay. So um, to finish up this question, it says, my parents struggle to see the damage that their behavior has on their children. I would love your thoughts on this and how to heal as an adult. Yeah. Um, having that kind of chaotic and uh, dangerous growing environment, the home environment while you're growing up can definitely be traumatic. Uh, for a lot of different reasons, uh, from cleanliness and safety, because there can be bugs and animals. And like I said, the, the cleanliness, there could be like bacteria and people can be getting sick. There can be mold. A lot of homes that are hoarders have a uh, black mold that grows. A lot of them also catch on fire because they'll put newspapers up against a, you know, a furnace and not or a heater and not realize that it got turned on or something like that. Um, so there can be a lot of reasons, not to mention just the fact that it can be embarrassing to try to bring friends home. We can always feel, um, you know, like, I don't know, like we're not clean. We don't have control over our environment and it can left, definitely lead to trauma, to eating disorder behavior, depression, anxiety, all sorts of things like that. Um, what I would encourage you to do is obviously to get into your own care. I know that not everyone can afford therapy, but there are cheaper options like BetterHelp, Talkspace, or even free online groups through Hope for Recovery. Um, and that's Hope and the number four recovery. They offer free groups online. There's a lot of other free groups. That's one of the random silver linings of COVID is that there was a lot of mental health support that was offered uh, for free or for very low cost. Um, there's also peer support things like used to be, uh, I mean, Crisis Text Line is one of those. It's 741741. You can reach out to them. But there was another one. It's Talk Life. I haven't gotten on there probably in the last like two or three years since COVID. But Talk Life used to be a great peer support resource. Um, and we have our Facebook group, Katie, too, if you're just looking for support, some support from our community. But my encouragement for you wouldn't be to get your parents to be able to see the damage that they've done. Because again, we I know I've said this before in the past, but it, you know we need it's a hard it's a hard thing to remember. We cannot change other people. We cannot cause other people to see the damage they've done to us. I know that sucks. I know it's painful. I know sometimes all we want to hear from someone who was abusive or harmful to us is, I'm sorry I did that. I'm so sorry that I didn't show up for you or I'm sorry that that happened. That's all we want to hear. But unfortunately, we can't make people do anything. We can't make people see the wrongs in their ways. We can't make people realize, you know, what a dirtbag they were or how hard, hard that was for you. We can't make people change. I mean, trust me, as a therapist, if I could do that, that'd be fucking amazing. Make my job so much easier. But people have to want to change. And so my encouragement for you would be to, instead of considering uh, or focusing on, I guess, how to get them to see the damage they've done, I'd encourage you to spend your time recognizing the damage that was done and considering what support you need to work through that. Because it's really about you. That's all you can control is yourself and your situation. And, you know, maybe offering yourself some validating uh, messages about it because it sounds like they are probably invalidating, thinking that you're making it into a bigger deal or whatever. But, that would be my encouragement for you would be to um, to do your work to heal yourself and to acknowledge, you know, as many times as you need to each and every day that what happened was damaging and it was traumatic to you. And hopefully your parents will come around. We can hope for it. We can want for it, but we cannot focus on it and it cannot be something that is necessary for us to heal because 
I hate to say it this way, but we'll be waiting forever, right? Because we can't make people do it. Maybe they'll come around. We can hope for that, but we can't wait to feel better for that long, right? We don't want to put our happiness in someone else's hands. We want to have our own control over it. And so every time your brain tries to tell you, hey, all I need is my parents to acknowledge. I want you to go, that, 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 that. Katie said, I can't make them acknowledge. I need to acknowledge. That's what I can do. That's what I can do for myself today. And I honestly think when we think like, oh, I need that person to apologize or I need them to do this. um, A lot of times what we're needing is actually to do it for ourselves. I need to offer this validation to myself. I need to apologize to myself for being in that relationship and letting them talk to me that way, right? There are ways that we can kind of turn it on its head so that we have the control over our own healing because that's a much more empowering place to be versus a helpless place where we're waiting for someone else to make a move, right? I know it's hard. I know it's definitely a tough love kind of conversation we're having, but trust me when I tell you that that's where we can get better. That's the only way we can heal because we cannot make someone else do it. Okay. Sorry, my nose is itching. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie. Sorry, I know this isn't exactly on psychology, but how do you talk to or support someone who has been through sexual abuse? I know you did a video on how to talk or support someone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts a while ago. And sorry to ask, but I hope this makes sense. No need to apologize. This is, of course, it's okay to ask this. Um, When it comes to talking and supporting someone who's been through sexual abuse, it's kind of similar to any mental illness. I don't want to put them all into the same bucket, but let me just walk you through a few kind of of the basics of what we can do. The best way to talk to someone or support is just to be there, to check in on them and let them tell you at their own pace about what happened and let them teach you about what that means. As much as you can, try not to make assumptions as much as you can, try not to talk over them. Because I know sometimes we want to help or we want to say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Those things are okay to say, you know, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that happened. But we want to give them space to talk. We want to help them feel heard and understood. And if something doesn't make sense, it's okay to ask questions. Let them teach you. And then the best thing we can do is just validate. I'm so sorry that that must have been so hard for you. I can't imagine what you've been through. Don't try to pretend you know I mean, if you've had a situation yourself, you can share your own. Don't assume they're the same. I think all of us would, it doesn't even matter what we're talking about. I think all of us um, would agree that it's better for someone just to let us talk than to pretend that they know what we're talking, you know, what we mean and how we feel. Let them teach you, ask questions, and then just be there. You can even, and I think it's completely okay. I think we'd all would agree. It's okay to say, how can I best support? And they might not know. A lot of people say, oh, I don't know. And you can say, well, if you think of something, you let me know. But until then, I'll just check in on you and be here. And that's really the best way to support. A lot of us just need those check-ins. We just want someone to show up for us, see how we're doing so that we're reminded regularly that we're not alone. And the fact that you're even asking me about this tells me that you're a wonderful friend and I'm sure your friend does feel supported and heard. Um, But hopefully those tips and tricks just kind of help you take it one step further. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hey, Katie, I was wondering if you can say something about the family dynamics when it comes to past abuse and trauma. I was abused by my parents and a sibling in my childhood, and the abuse stopped and the relationship changed. I spent much time in therapy to deal with the trauma that it caused, still because of what happened. But I find it hard to deal with the ambiguity of having been abused as a child and loved as an adult, right? That's got to be a mind fuck. I'm so sorry. Is there a way to deal with this? And is there a possible healthy adult relationship, even if the child-parent relationship was so complicated? What a great question. Now, every once in a while, I'll get questions like this where the abuse stops and sometimes the relationship changes. Sometimes I've even heard from you that your parents, you know, got to therapy and then apologized and like tried to make amends. Now, there are two components, but to answer the questions in a very succinct fashion, Yes, there's a way to deal with this. And yes, it's possible to have a healthy adult relationship, even if, you know, the relationship as a child was super complicated and abusive. Okay. That's the short answer. But the longer answer is that the best way to deal with it is to do your work in therapy. Now, you might want to minimize your contact for a little bit while you process this through. Just because they're ready to move forward and want to have a healthy relationship doesn't mean that you're ready. And it also doesn't mean that you don't want that relationship. I encourage you to maybe tell them just not right now. I'm doing work in therapy to heal from, you know, the past abuse. And you can say like, I appreciate that you're trying to make things better. 
I just have a lot of stuff to work through. I would assume and hope that they would understand because if they expect to, things to move forward, they have to give you some time, right? When we've wronged someone or we've harmed someone or abused someone, they kind of get to call the shots if we want to try, if we've done our best to make amends and we kind of have to wait for them to be ready if they're ever ready, right? <clears throat> so you can communicate that in whatever way you feel comfortable, but letting them know and communicating it, I think is key if we're wanting to have a healthy relationship moving forward. And then we're going to have to do, and I know y'all are just going to cringe, but we're going to have to do that inner child work. Meaning, what was it? it? This could be through journaling. It could even be through just role play with your therapist. But maybe we get a photo of ourselves at that age. What was little you trying to say? What did you wish they would hear? What what happened? And and how invalidated did you feel? Can we give you that validation now? Can we give you that support now? Can we give you those good mother or good father messages that we were so desperately wanting at that time? There are some amazing books. One is called, um, I know yours is um, Abuse and this is Emotional Neglect. This book is specific to emotional neglect, but I still think it could be healing here. And it's called The Emotionally Unavailable Mother. And then the other one is The Unavailable Father. Those are both great books. They're both in my Amazon shops. You can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie. I think it's, is it Katie or Katie Morton? Let me pull it up really quick here. I forget. I've said it a million times, but um, yeah, Katie Morton. So amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. All the books I mentioned are always in there. And we always, I think Sean always links in the description. I'll double check, but I'm pretty sure. Um, So anyways, those books are great. I think doing that inner child work, talking to younger you, I know it sounds kind of woo-woo. I hear you. It sounds really weird. But trust me when I tell you that when we're abused as children, we feel like our voice isn't important. Or even if we have it, it's not heard. Uh, We can feel really invalidated, like we're making up what happened. We can, again, that shame blame we talked about earlier, right? Something's wrong with me or I did something to bring this on. We can have a lot of those beliefs and those thoughts And so it's important for us as an adult to look back at child us and listen to those things and tell them that it's okay and that what happened wasn't their fault. And we're going to have to have those conversations and do that work. Now, once we feel like we have a better handle on that, then I think we can try to work on a healthy adult relationship with our parents. And, you know, you may want to bring them into therapy. You may not. You may want to take your time slowly just because they're our parent doesn't mean they get to jump right back into being the closest person to us, especially if they've proven in the past that they, you know, aren't worthy of that. They kind of have to earn our trust a little bit back and we have to build an entirely new relationship. Um, so take your time, um, you know, work on it with your therapist, communicate with your parents as much as you feel safe and okay doing about, you know, what you're going through and what you're working on and why it's going to take some time and then take your time. And if you have questions you need to ask of them in order to do that inner child work and you feel okay doing that, let's do that. You know, we can use it as a tool for our healing, but it's just going to take some time. But again, the answer is yes, you can deal with it. And yes, you can have a healthy relationship. It just takes some time. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. And if you hear barking, which I assume you don't, but my dog is uh, having, uh, she's getting very excited outside. So that's, that's what's going on right now. And I stole Sean's chapstick. Okay. Question number seven says, hi, Katie, can childhood trauma make adult working life too much for some people? Yes. That's a short answer. I really struggle with being needed and having responsibilities such as working certain days a week. I struggle with nightmares and some days I don't leave my bed when it's too bad, which makes holding down a job just impossible when in reality, all I want is to be quote unquote normal and have a normal life. I just can't accept that life is harder for me and that's why I struggle. I always put it down to being lazy, useless, and just unreliable. Thank you. Now those beliefs about being just lazy, useless, and unreliable. Those are, it's a trauma conversation. I know that doesn't make sense for some people, but consider what we talked about at the beginning, the guilt, the embarrassment, the shame, something's wrong with me. That shame is that conversation. I'm lazy, useless, and unreliable. Instead of what's really going on is I was traumatized and I'm having a hard time coping, right? That's the truth. So I encourage you to just at least acknowledge that that's what's happened. Every time you think I'm lazy, useless, I'm unreliable, think, but I also was traumatized and it's making it hard for me to cope. Okay. We don't have to, again, we don't have to negate these immediately and turn into a positive. We just have to argue back with some facts because those aren't the facts. Okay. Now, yes, childhood trauma can make adult working life too much because we haven't had a chance to process it. 
So I encourage you, if if you're able, um, to to find a therapist that takes your insurance or is something you can afford. You can even apply. There's a reason that there's the Americans with Disabilities Act, and every state has a uh, their different form of this. But you can take uh, medical leave. You, I've, I can't tell you how many of my patients over the years I've put on short-term or long-term disability for mental illness, being traumatized, having PTSD, having depression, having bipolar disorder, having an eating disorder, any number of mental illnesses, having panic attacks and having panic disorder. Those are all reasons enough to take some leave so that you can take care of yourself. There's a reason it's you're trying to do too much trying to go to work and working this X amount of days so that you feel like you're putting, doing what you need to do or earning your keep, you know, it's making it impossible for you to work on what you need to work on. And that's why, you know, you just can't do it. It's it's overextending you. And so I really just encourage you to see if you can maybe, you know, go on short-term or long-term disability, take some leave. Um, a therapist will quickly and easily fill out that paperwork for you as long as they've been seeing you for a little while. So maybe if you're not seeing someone now, we can start and it'll take a couple of months for them to feel like they can write up that paperwork. Um, But talk to them about it and let them know what's going on because trauma is debilitating. And if we're constantly, just think about the symptoms. If we're constantly hypervigilant, meaning we're on edge looking around, somebody's going to jump out of somewhere and get us, right? We're always feeling that way. Um, Makes it hard to focus. What if I'm not sleeping because I have flashbacks and nightmares? I can't concentrate. Um, What if I have to avoid certain things because they remind me of my trauma? Maybe that makes it impossible for me to do my job. And that's just a couple of symptoms. What about dissociation? What if I'm so stressed out and triggered, I dissociate when my boss is telling me what I need to do that week? Then I have no memory of it, right? Just think about how all the symptoms can impact our ability to do our jobs. And that's why disability short-term, long-term, and we have... Uh, protectorants in place to help us with that because you're not, you don't have to do it all and you don't have to do it alone. So please reach out for help. Please take a break. You're not lazy or useless. You've been traumatized and you're, it's, it's become too much to cope with, right? We're just doing too much. Okay. There was a comment on this said, um, oh, just some detail to add. If my question gets picked, I've been in therapy for the last year. Okay, cool my last year and a half, my therapist will no longer see me as she said, I need a higher level of care. So I'm in the process of trying to figure out what that is. Yes. I think a day program or something like that. And that will come along with your, if your therapist will fill this out, either your therapist, um, cause you've already been seeing her. So that's perfect. Sorry. I should have read this right out the gate, but I didn't. <clears throat> um, or the people at the higher level of care, that could be an IOP, meaning an intensive outpatient where you're there for like, let's say four hours a day, or let's say three full days a week. There's different variations of day programs or PHP, which is a partial hospitalization program. Um, Those could both be great uh, options for you. And both of those would allow you to apply easily uh, for some disability and some leave, some medical leave. There's also FMLA leave, which is like family medical leave, um, where you can take time off to take care of yourself. A lot of my friends who've had complicated pregnancies or birth have taken extra time through that leave. Um, or my friends who've had a family member, uh, you know, fall sick and they need to take care of them. They've taken time for that too. So there are resources out there. This is at least within the States. And I would assume in our socialized systems and other parts of the world, there's the same type of, uh, setup. It's just probably called something differently. So if you're from another country, you can leave it in the comments. So those of us who might be curious can figure that out and ask for what we need, but there are ways to get those needs met, um, and get you that higher level of care so that you can take a break. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. And this question is, hey, Katie, if you experience sexual abuse before you get to the age when you start to experience sexual attraction to others, how is it possible to know if the abuse has altered your sexuality or not? Great question. We talked about this a little bit. Was it last week or the week before? I was abused at the age of 14. And at the time, I hadn't started to feel sexual attraction yet. Only romantic attraction. That's totally normal. That's just like that age. It's like middle school. As an adult, I still feel little sexual attraction. And up until recently, I thought that that's because of my trauma and that it should change when I heal. Now I'm starting starting to wonder if that won't happen and that I am on the asexual spectrum. Either that I was that I was all along or that my sexuality changed permanently and that it isn't something that needs to be fixed. 
I've had periods in my life where I've had a high sex drive, but thinking back to it now, that that has been in the periods where my complex PTSD was worse. So maybe that was a trauma reaction. It definitely can be rather than my lack of sexual interest. I do still have trauma reactions connected to sex. Seeing, hearing, thinking about it is extremely triggering. But I wonder if the trauma reactions and asexuality can coexist and that both can be valid. Or do I have to quote unquote fix both? To be clear, if I am really asexual, I'm completely fine with it and actually a bit relieved, I'm sure. We can feel pressure to think and act in certain ways in life. And I'm here to tell you you don't have to do any of that. Now, the truth is you kind of answered your own question. And that's why I love it because you clearly have a lot of insight. And I just want to give you like a pat on the back for that. So good job. Now, when we've been abused when we're younger, it can definitely affect our relationship with sex. I'd even we've talked about I had a video member about religious trauma. And I think a lot of religions who talk uh you know, sex is dirty and bad and even thinking about masturbating, you're going to go to hell, you know, all of that kind of like ruling over our innate normal bodily desires with, you know, God's going to strike you down is traumatizing. And I think it can really mess with our ability to have a happy, healthy sex life. I heard from a lot of you, you can struggle to have a healthy sex life with your spouse. I actually had a girl I grew up with. I won't obviously name name because I don't even talk to her, but I grew up with her she was super religious and she married a guy super religious also and they were never able to have sex and they end up getting divorced and he's now happily remarried to another one of my friends and they're doing great but they could never have sex because she felt like it was so dirty and wrong and bad and that's not right you know and so i only bring that up as like there's a lot of ways for our relationship with sex and sex and sexuality for it to be altered and changed now does that mean that you're not aromantic no or or asexual no it sounds like you have romantic attraction so i'm sorry i said aromantic i meant asexual um but what you're why i said you answered your own question is you said i assumed it would get better as i work through it and it will and i might encourage you not put not to put yourself in dangerous situations but to you know go on a date or two if you want doesn't mean i'm not talking we don't have to have sex we don't have to kiss nothing one date with someone a new person right um just to see how you feel about it. it that might be a, also a good test with your therapist if you're doing any kind of exposures to see if you can feel okay doing that. We might have to use some tools to calm ourselves down. It might be like a goal for the future. Um, but as we work through and process our trauma, that's then and only then are we going to know if our asexuality is truly a trauma response or if that's just who we are. I've had got a lot of questions over the years too that like, hey, Am I just uh, a lesbian because I was abused by a man, you know, and or am I just, you know, am I gay or bisexual? There can be questions about that, right? Did it affect me and change my sexuality? And the short answer is it could, but it also could not. And I want you to be as curious and non-judgmental as possible while you figure this out. We don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to want to be in a relationship right now or want to have sex with someone, but doing the courage to heal workbook could be a really great resource for you because towards the end, I think it's like chapter 20. Um, they talk about how to have a happy, healthy sex life after, you know, sexual abuse. And I think doing that homework might be a way to start thinking about whether that is something that you might want, or if we just think that, you know, we are asexual, right? But it's going to take some of that curiosity, some of that non-judgment, and unfortunately a lot of trauma work, but you're already doing it keep working through it. Don't, I don't want you to think of like having to fix both. Think of it as, um, you know, as I heal myself from this past wound, this might change or it might not. And I'm just going to let it be what it is. You know, take your time with it because I'll, I'm here to tell you it's very, very common for a, a healthy sex life to be difficult for those of us who have sexual abuse in our past. Doesn't mean impossible, but it can be complicated. So give yourself, be patient curious and we'll figure it out little by little. Okay. You don't have to have all the answers right now. Now there was a comment on this and it says, and how do you know if your lack of attraction stems from trauma or is just part of your asexuality? 
I have the same problem, but not only with sexual attraction, but with also romantic attraction. I don't know if I've just built up walls to protect myself or if I just can't feel romantic and sexual attraction. How do you work with that? Again, not to say it's the same answer, but it really is. These questions are right in line with each other. And so it's doing that trauma work. It's being curious, not judgmental about it. And really, I cannot recommend the Courage to Heal workbook enough. Um, Again, it's in my Amazon store, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. Pick it up. There, it's a yellow book and they have other newer ones and adult. you can definitely get those ones, but even the oldie, but a goodie, like the one of the first editions, those are great. Um, I really think it can be incredibly healing and just give yourself time. We don't have to know. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to, you know, decide today if we want to date or have sex with someone. And honestly, if we rush to do that, we can re-traumatize ourselves. So be patient. It's okay to not know. Nobody says we have to figure it out now. I know there can be a lot of pressure to need to get married or have a baby or do this or decide that by a certain time. No, some people don't get married at all. Some people get married in their 50s for the first time or in their 60s. Some people adopt children. Some people decide to have children. Some people like me, you don't want kids at all. Um, You don't have to decide things right now. Don't let society tell you that there's a timeline because there isn't, okay? There's another comment on this. It said, I don't know if this is along the same vein, but I've also wondered about my sexual attraction. To my knowledge, I've never been sexually abused, but I get panicky at the thought of sexual or romantical, romantic, physical intimacy. Sorry, romantical. Also, that could work. Um, I also have had periods in my life where I've had a high sex drive, but explored that on my own. The idea of being romantically or sexually intimate with a partner is just about unbearable to me. Interesting. I don't want to kiss. I don't want to hold hands. I don't want to touch. But all of this is specific to a romantic partner. Platonically, I'm comfortable with physical touch. But uh, for just a bit of context, I also struggle with an eating disorder, which my therapist thinks could be related. It could. And uh, romantic sexual physical touch was treated like a sin. Oh, here we go. I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. But would that be enough to trigger my trauma-like responses to romantic or physical touch? Yes. I'm glad I mentioned that earlier. That's what we call religious trauma. Um, Or do you think that it's more than that? I think that's what it is, actually. I sometimes wonder if I have a repressed memory or if I was sexually abused before I can remember because my reaction to people trying to touch me in a romantic way way is so panicky. Unlike the person above, I do desire to be able to have a sexual relationship with a partner one day. So I'm currently working on all of this with my therapist, who I love, and we are starting EMDR soon. Good. Awesome. Thanks so much. And sorry, this is so long. That's okay. I think there's, it's important to give this a little bit of space because religious abuse and just, it's not, not that I'd call it religious sexual abuse because I think people would assume something out of that. And that's not quite the term that we meet, we, we want to use, but that kind of religious uh, indoctrination into a sex is dirty, touch is bad. You should never want that when our bodies are actually wired to want that, think about how important procreation is for the world, right? We have to want to have sex with someone so that we can have babies and we have to want to, you know, group together to create family units for support for our environment. I mean, there's so many reasons in our society and in our world, whether you think of it economically or you think of it just like survival, right? We do better in groups. Um, there's so many reasons that our body would want those things. And when we're going through puberty, our hormones are going to be stronger than ever. And our sex drive is going to be stronger. And that's the time when in churches, they're like, that's it's the devil coming through you. So then what you believe the devil, you know, that's really traumatizing. And so I believe that that's my, my hunch would be that that's where it's coming from. Um, I, the EMDR will be incredibly healing. I'm glad you love your therapist and you're working with her on this. I would encourage you to continue talking about this this Christian upbringing and the trauma that um, you sustained as a result of it. I've talked about it briefly in my religious trauma video, and you might want to watch that again and see if anything rings true for you. Um, there are a bunch of groups online. When I was doing the religious trauma research, there are a ton of groups online for people who are trying to heal from that and people who have come out of, you know, especially... Uh, very conservative, very strict religions or religious groups, right? Whether it's just the church that you're in happens to be extremely strict, or it's just the sect, you know, a lot of ex-Mormons, a lot of ex, uh, what's it called? Uh, It'll come to me uh, in a minute. But anyway, um, the ones who come by your door and leave the pamphlets, what are they called? Jehovah's Witness. Um, A lot of those, and a lot of, you know, 
purity culture Christians. I was raised in that kind of era of purity culture where if you decide to have sex before marriage, you know, it's like you were tainted forever and no one's ever going to love you. That was kind of the message that I was told at church. And I think that that can really fuck with our heads and make us think that, especially if there was abuse in our past, right? Then we're like, holy shit, it's already happened to me. What am I supposed to do? Right. But also as we grow up and decide that maybe we do want to, like this person's saying, I want to have a sexual relationship with someone. I want to have a healthy life and I want to maybe get married. I don't know. All of that could be tainted um, and and affect our relationship with ourselves and our sexuality. So I'd encourage you to keep talking about it with your therapist. I think that, that is definitely, I might even think that that's part of your eating disorder because if the church uh, took away all of your control outside, what can you control? Your body. I had a lot of friends in church who struggled with eating disorders, and I think that that's a huge part of it. It's, and I know a lot of people say, oh, eating disorders are about control. Sometimes they are, not all the time. But in this case, I think it might have something to do with that. It's your way of coping with the fact that they didn't allow you to have any control. Okay, I hope that that helps and keep us posted, okay? Final question, question number nine says, hi, Katie, how can I know if I'm really an introvert or if I just avoid and distance myself from people because I'm afraid that they could hurt me or let me down. Good question. And if I'm finding being around people draining, is it because I'm an introvert or because I'm managing anxiety and triggers? Thank you always. Of course, it's tricky. Being an introvert doesn't mean that we don't like people. I think that's a common misunderstanding. And I should probably talk about this in a TikTok or video or something. But people often think that being an introvert means we don't like people. That's not true. Being an introvert means that we feel better and more um, recharged through time alone or time with one really close friend. We struggle with a lighthearted conversation, kind of what you'd call, you know, like the meet and greet uh, cocktail talk or coffee talk like that. Just very surface uh, small talk is painful for introverts. We like deep conversations with people we know and love and we like to be alone. Also, so if we don't, if we find ourselves not liking people, that could be because it's triggering and you're managing your anxiety. And that also could cause us to be exhausted. Um, But the being afraid that they could hurt you or let you down, it doesn't sound like introversion. To me, this sounds more like uh, you're protecting yourself because of what happened. So I wonder if there's something in here, like I'd, I'd be curious about your attachment growing up. Like how are your parents? That sounds kind of anxious avoidant to me. I have videos about attachment. If you want to search, just get onto YouTube, put uh, anxious avoidant attachment, Katie Morton, it'll come up or attachment, Katie Morton, they'll come up. Um, yeah, I th- my based on this person specifically, I don't think it's you're an introvert. I think something else is there. And I'd encourage you to be curious, not judgmental about it. Um, but yeah, being out there managing anxiety and triggers and trying to calm our system down and stay present, that's, that is exhausting. I'm drained just thinking about it. So I think that that's really where that's coming from. Um, but yeah, I'd love to also hear you guys' thoughts in the comments. Do you, do you think that that's introversion or what do you think that is? But that's really my hypothesis. Let's be curious. Let's be a detective, see what we can find out. Right. Um, but that's kind of where my mind goes and watch some of those videos and let me know if that rings true for you. Cause that's really where my, my brain goes when I, when I read this question. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for all of your questions and comments. And thank you for sharing this podcast. You have no idea how much it helps. You have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care of yourselves. Make some time for that breath in. And I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.